Welcome to Getting Work to Work, a weekly podcast exploring the creative and curious world of work through monologues and conversations with creative entrepreneurs, storytellers, and changemakers. How would you describe your intention when you think about the most significant issues we are facing as a society? Do you give yourself the space and silence to be curious, or are you rushing to an answer so that you can be first and right? In today's conversation with Christopher Butler, we explore not only the topics of artificial intelligence, ethics, and technology, but how we can better set the stage for our lives in a world constantly plugged into the internet. I found this conversation with Chris insightful in numerous ways, from having a deeper understanding of breathing and silence to the role curiosity can play as I think about my position in the bigger picture. Show notes and links to all the good stuff mentioned in this episode can be found at gwtw.co slash 667. Well, Chris, it is wonderful to have you back on the show. I think this, this is the fourth time that you've been on Getting Work to Work, and I always appreciate the wisdom, the depth of concern for others that you bring. It's wonderful. Thank you for being here. That's my pleasure. I, I've, I've admired uh, what you do, and I would say the same thing for you. I mean, uh, we were just in our pre-roll chat talking about like, well, you know, as creatives thinking of the world in terms of what do we have to put out there? What do we have to say? And something that I really enjoy about your program, whether it's the monologue or uh, in a, a, a discussion like this, is that you always have something to say, but you a lot of times you have something to ask. And I think being a uh, a representation of that kind of questioning and curiosity and I can tap into that and know that I can sort of experience the question by way of you asking it. That's a gift. You know, it's a really, it's, it's something that I get a lot from. I get a lot from that. And I think it's important to model it. You know, it's important to model that media and relationships can be made out of asking questions, not out of making statements alone. Wow. Thank you for that. That, yeah, that means a lot to me because. I think sometimes it can be really hard to think that you're making a difference or making some impact. And the fact that you can model something through asking a question is, wow, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I think so too. As I was thinking about our time together, because you're one of those people when I when I know that it's time to have you on the show, I start thinking a little bit differently than I would maybe another guest. Uh, because you have a you have your pull you have your finger on the pulse of humanity, I think in a way that's different than a lot of people. And so the phrase that kind of popped up was "take a deep breath, humanity." I don't know why it, it just one of those things that popped into my head. And so I thought I'd ask, when was the last time you stopped to really take a deep breath? I think probably before I clicked the zoom link today, uh, to talk to you. I mean, I think that <laughs> it's important to do it. I had a colleague about 15 years ago who I remember she and I were waiting in line at a coffee shop. We had taken a break to have a conversation and she was talking about how she had learned at a previous job from someone who came in that most people don't actually breathe right, especially when they're working, that they sort of get locked into a pattern of taking very shallow breaths 
And as a result, all kinds of issues can come from that, whether they're attention focused, cognitive issues, or even physical ones, right? And that this person was sort of brought in by the management to train people on how to actually fill your lungs with air and, and, you know, and to build that habit, because when you're sort of sitting in that sort of hunched over computer posture, it can be really easy to, you know, bring in the bare minimum of air. And I will never, for some reason, I'll never forget that conversation. It made such an impression on me that perhaps because I had recognized that, yeah, maybe I get locked into that pattern, but also that someone would even think about that, you know, um, and I've, I think about that on a regular basis. So I would say today, um, but I think, you know, the idea behind what you just said, take a deep breath, humanity, it, that seems like wise advice for the moment, because there's a lot of things happening in the world right now that, uh, I think we are reacting maybe a bit much and a bit too soon to, and maybe we just need to take a deep breath and observe a little bit before we do anything else, you know, whether it has to do with technology or not. So yeah, take a deep breath. We should all do that. It's like, we're all fighting to get like our pithy statements on what's happening in the world out there so that we can show just how insightful and in, in check and how right we are. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost like if, if you, if you've gotten word that someone of note has passed away you should just not open twitter for the next two days because everybody's getting in on that and it goes from the adulation to the backlash to the backlash to the adulation to the backlash to the backlash to the back and it's just it's too much yeah. sometimes it's good to just be quiet i love what you said about breathing and how we don't really approach breathing enough when what we're doing and I don't really think about it enough when I'm working, but when I notice it the most is when I pick up my guitar and I'm doing my warm up exercises because now that I'm a certain age in life, if I don't warm up for 15 minutes, my hands cramp up and I hurt and I'm old. Um, but it's in those moments when I'm just kind of plucking away where I feel just how much I'm not breathing. And I love that there are things that we can do outside of our daily lives that remind us to breathe and almost shine a mirror of, of your life. See, <laughs> breathe a little bit more. Yeah. I mean, breathing is therapeutic if it's done right. I mean, um, there's so many areas of uh, experience where you can use breath work itself to either cope or get through something, whether, I mean, that's uh, one way of getting through childbirth. Um, person, for example, um, what I remember many years ago when I first started uh, doing public speaking, even though I was confident in the material, I was nervous about getting up in front of so many people and what, what are they going to think and their judgment and all that. And I would have a physiological response to that nervousness. Like I'd feel my heart rate increasing rapidly, my hands would get clammy, and that would cause my articulation to be not smooth. And it, I just wouldn't be me. And I received some coaching from a friend at that point uh, to use breath work prior to doing your presentation. And in fact, the 
for me, it was always very reliable about 10 minutes before, like if I, if I was going up on, at, on stage at 9am, be like 8.50 and it would start. Interesting. And so that that's great though, because it gives you 10 minutes to kind of come down from it and to do that breath work and to take those very deep breaths, taking as much air as you can, but then the controlled exhale, the, <laughs> right? You close your mouth and make it a little bit of work to get that air out. And by doing that, just that for a few minutes, it tells your body to chill out, right? The heart rate goes down. And it's amazing because if you can get over that hump, I found that I would get up on stage and it wouldn't catalyze sort of this process that I couldn't get ahead of, right? Because if I didn't do that, then I'd get on stage and my heart rate would already be going faster than I wanted it to. And I'd already be a little bit clammy and that would make me more nervous because I'd feel like that nervousness was showing to everybody, which of course it would be. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, bre breath work is incredible. And, you know, obviously there are areas of meditation that are all about that, but it is amazing that we are these uh, physical creatures that we don't need technology for that. We just need the mouths that we have and the lungs that we have and the air that we have. You don't need an app for it. And yet there are so many apps for breathing and meditation that <laughs> yes, there are that remind us on on how to do it instead of just, you know, it's so simple. Like I think I've read one of my favorite exercises was imagining a square with fours on each side. So, you know, you breathe in for four, hold for four, exhale for four, hold right. for four. I think that was Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. Um but even then, every once in a while, I'll see a square and immediately just start breathing for four, hold for four, exhale for four, hold for four. And yeah, it's it's fun when you can just be reminded so low tech of yeah. how to do things. Right. And it's not like it, it feels I feel a little bit weird espousing the virtues of breath work at the beginning of our conversation, <laughs> because like I'm not I'm by no means. You know, I'm not sitting here with like my my wooden bead bracelet and like, you know, I, I'm not that I'm not that guy. People who are on the podcast who can't see me, that's not who I am at all. But um, it is amazing that th things like that, no matter how good you are at what you do, or no matter how long you've been doing it, or no matter where you are in life, just the basics of being a human organism on this planet are worth remembering and uh, sort of being curious about and practicing in certain ways because they can improve your life in some way. And I, I, I stay, I say that as a student, not as a master in any way. Well, it's, it's always fun to start a conversation in a completely unexpected way, because, you know, I think when we get too prescriptive of how we go through conversations or, or all that, I think sometimes we can, um, forget that, we contain multitudes. Oh yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that was fun. One of the things about you, apart from breath work, Chris, that intrigues me <laughs> is you tweet like every day you you're, you're constantly adding to this conversation in a unique, positive way. I feel, uh, what is it about Twitter that, and, and all of its, glory and horrific nature of it what keeps you there yeah that is a great question because if i've ever been close to maybe saying i think i might be done with a particular social media it's been recently but yeah twitter i i, I was an early adopter of twitter 
And I think I immediately recognized what about it was special because for me, it, it was sort of the thing that I liked the most about the internet boiled down to its essence that one person on one side of the wire, so to speak, can connect with another person on the other side of the wire, you know, and, and I'm sort of thinking of it in terms of like when I was a kid, um, you know, there was that thing that some kids did of stretching two cans between a, a window with a wire. Yeah. And um, I, I'm not sure I actually ever did that, but I, I knew about it and it sort of set a precedent in my mind for the idea of remote connection and how that can be special, you know, being holed up in your room and your friend holed up in their room. And yet you have this special line that only the two of you can use and understand. And Twitter, though it is broadcast to everyone that, you know, it's almost as if everyone could listen into that line, still felt precious in that way, felt special. And it was down to so many limitations, you know, like 140 characters, that's it. Um, and it was just about, here's a little bit of information. And, you know, people used to joke about how in the early days it was like, what am I having for lunch today? But it became about more than that so quickly. And frankly, I made friends on Twitter. I mean, I think that's how you and I got connected. And I, and I have a, at this point, I, what I feel like is a substantial list of people that I care deeply for and vice versa that I would not know if it weren't for that particular platform. And again, I think that's interesting because that was never Twitter's intent. Twitter didn't set out to be like what Facebook is. But I don't have any friends that I made because of Facebook. Zero. Literally zero. And I haven't been on Facebook for years. But even when I was on it, I never made a friend on Facebook. I reconnected with people I had already known. But Twitter was different. And I think that's because it was likely that if, that if you were going to connect with someone over Twitter, it was over an idea a shared interest, a shared curiosity. Yeah. And so I think that's what keeps me there. Um, but you do have to be disciplined in using Twitter today. At least I I feel that way. Yeah. For instance, I don't think I could use tw Twitter if TweetDeck did not exist. Because TweetDeck makes it very easy for me to take a very curated version of my Twitter stream and see only that. It makes it really easy for me to visualize and moderate my experience, which has to be fairly mediated by like muting and term muting and, you know, selective lists. Um, but as a result, I, I feel like I've always experienced the good Twitter, right? I, I don't, I don't really experience much of the trolling and the, the mean spiritedness that people describe there. Yeah. I, I appreciate that take too, because I feel, I still feel about Twitter the same way where I've met people that I otherwise wouldn't have met. And I still, there's still that surprise every day when you log in and it's, it's the opposite of rage, you know, doom scrolling, but it's more of just like, Oh, that, that was a really interesting thought, Chris. I, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way, you know, or whomever I happen to see at that moment. And, and I just, there's still some good things I think from technology that, that uh, we can't quite throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, I, and and maybe there's something about Twitter, and I, this is a subjective take because, as a self-identified introvert, mm -hmm. I th that element of Twitter that allows me to express and receive information with a lot of control over 
how much of that I take in and what kind I take in, it really suits me as an introvert because, you know, I want that I that feeling of controlled isolation. Like I, you were gonna, I think you were gonna ask about this. Um, you know, I had, I had actually mentioned this on Twitter recently that for me, one of the most special feelings to continue to cultivate, especially today, as an introvert, is controlled isolation, right? And so I know you you wanted to know because we discussed this what that means what like what what does that what does controlled isolation mean Does that mean you're just sitting alone in your room and no one's around <laughs> Yes yeah isn't that beautiful No I mean no not necessarily but I think for me it's it's I mentioned that the cans and wire thing you know I you and I came of age when the internet or what we call the internet was still a space you visited, right? And that's how everyone understood it and talked about it, right? Mm -hmm. Connecting, like entering a chat room or discovering that web page, um, receiving that email. Prodigy. Right? Yeah. It, it, and it felt special. And you just described that in terms of sometimes you log into Twitter and there's that little text nugget and it feels special, right? That was the feeling in the early 90s, uh, for me anyway, that connecting to the internet uh, brought so often. And it was so special that for years, every time you entered one of the largest digital spaces, they actually played the sound of a door opening and closing, and you heard the voice of a guy say that you have mail, right? Uh, you know, that's that's that would never have been designed that way if it hadn't been a minority experience that was considered special. But now the internet, or what we mean when we say the internet, is this persistent infinite, infinitely deep layer of information spread over any and all spaces that we inhabit, right? And whether or not that's a bad thing, because we could have a whole discussion about that, but whether or not that's a bad thing, it has inverted that earlier feeling, right? Now the feeling of being disconnected is special. And so if the old conventions carry forward, by the way, we'd all be have driven been driven mad like 10 years ago by hearing that voice, you've got mail a thousand times a day, right? Like the, that's no longer novel. Receiving information is just as as common as breathing. So I think that back to sort of the romanticism of the cans and wires, I've kind of always romanticized the idea of being isolated but connected. Yeah. Um, right. There's the there's a scene in an old episode of the X-Files where there's this paranoid broadcaster who's running his radio show from an RV in the middle of a desert. Um, and something about that like really made its way into my head back then and has stayed there. Um, and that's probably because that is sort of what the early days of the internet felt like. You could be in the middle of Joshua Tree before it was like an Instagram hotness place, right? Like back then in the 90s, no one was there. You could be in the middle of nowhere or you could be on a run-of-the-mill uh, uh, suburban cul-de-sac in Delaware, and it didn't matter. Um, you were ensconced in your sense of place, but you could connect to someone else. And rather than that feeling like you were sharing a digital space that was sort of a homogenous corporate layer, it felt like a space that sprung into existence just because the two of you were connecting in that moment and then dissipated when you left and you kept coming together. And that that felt really special. And that's what I mean by controlled isolation. And that's what I still try to cultivate today. Yeah. Right. I I love that because as as you were describing it, I I kept thinking about the different ways that I connected in the late 90s, early 2000s 
right on, I would say, on the cusp of the the commoditization of the internet and the corporate controlled takeover of it. Because it was still in those early years of it being a utopian space, a, a space of you know, a pirate level of, of stuff, not like the pirate Bay, but just like the pirate sensibility where you could be anywhere. Right. Um, like even Napster could exist, you know, and, and I remember how many things I downloaded, you mm-hmm. know, through that, how horrible the quality was. But I think, um, I, I, I just, I, I think about what we had, what we lost and can we ever really get that back? And I think what you're describing as controlled isolation might be the answer to getting close to what we had. Yeah. And and for me, that's I think the answer is a disciplined use. Oof, for me, you word again. Yeah, yeah. I know. I mean, but that's the thing. I, I think the, if you the, for me, I think about uh the last 30, we've had the internet for about 30 years, yeah. right? For the, for the most part. Um, it, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well versed in the history of the internet and realized the foundation was already there and it was being used in lots of places first, but for the average person, you were starting to gain home access to the internet in the early to mid nineties. And so that's about a generation to have figured this out to have started to figure out some of the like boom and bust cycles, not economically per se, but in terms of our exposure to it. And what it reminds me a lot of is that when I was in college, I was an RA for basically my entire time through college, a residence advisor. Yeah. And, um, I can see, I noticed, yeah, I, I loved it. Uh, even as an introvert, I loved the, the, the community cultivation part of it, but I noticed a pattern every year, which was the, uh, first weekend of, college in September, the orientation uh, week, no one would ever go to bed. Mm. Right. And, and we, the RAs would joke about it. would be like, you kids need to go to bed, right? You can't party for seven days straight, go to bed. You're, 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 you're ODing on the freedom. And, and, and that's what it was. They, they were justifiably intoxicated by being around one another, being in this new place both discovering a place that was new to them, but also creating a place that was theirs. All of that made sense. And and so even though we joke like, go to bed, you know, it's ridiculous. We were jaded. We had seen the cycle of it over and over again, but we could also completely understand why that was happening, why that cycle would happen. Well, I see the last 30 years of the internet as kind of that first college weekend, right? We just, we haven't learned to go to bed, to turn it off. And in fact, we've done everything in our power to create a culture around it never being turned off. Mm-hmm. And now that culture is so uh, complex, um, and so uh, there's so many dependencies within that culture that we actually we can't fully turn it off right. in places. Yeah. So that requires the individual to make lots of choices yeah. on on a daily basis. Many many choices. What am I going to use? What am I not going to use? How long am I going to use it? What am I going to use it for? What, you know, who am I going to interact with? What, what are the rules around that? How, how can I use the tools of that tech to moderate my experience? It's all a discipline. If you don't employ that discipline, then the tool will decide for you. Yeah. So for me as an introvert, um, it's, it's about being really vigilant to that because otherwise I'll be exhausted all the time for someone else. It might be different, but ultimately what you can't do is not make choices. 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, because I guess for a long time, for many years, I thought of introversion and extroversion in a fairly unhelpful way, right? That introverts were shy and antisocial and extroverts were not. Yeah. Um, well, you know, as I say, I'm an introvert and I'm certainly not shy or antisocial. What I've learned is that the difference between introversion and extroversion is really about what gives you energy. Mm-hmm. So for introverts, socializing is something that takes more energy than it gives. doesn't mean it's bad or unpleasurable or undesired. It just means that you've got to be alone to recharge. For extroverts, being with others is what charges them up, yeah. right? And maybe being alone might actually be harder. Mm-hmm. So as an introvert, again, I have to really be vigilant of like, well, what what's on and what's off? What, what am I taking in? What am I not? Because input of information is just as exhausting to me as an introvert as going to a party, you know? Yeah. This is aligning with a book I'm reading right now called Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise. Because in a lot of ways, uh, they define noise as that, you know, the internal noise in our in our minds, the the obvious noise in our environments, but then also that larger sense of noise in the cultural or societal sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you think about introversion, controlled isolation, um, being able to control your experience of technology, how does silence fit into all that for you? Man, silence is so important. And it's important, I think, again, this is my own personal dogma, but um, I think that most people would benefit from being in silence more than they are. Mm-hmm. You know, if if the most silence you ever experience as a human is the one you can't hear because you're asleep and unconscious, then that's probably not great. You should probably find some time for silence because I think that's when you your brain starts to do some pattern wreck. You know, your brain will make use of uh, idle time pretty well. And if you, for instance, you know, there's that old adage of like people do a lot of good thinking in the shower. Yeah, right. Um, and that's because there's you're 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 alone. There's no other sound but the sort of white noise of the water. And you have your brain has nothing else but to start connecting dots. Well, what if every shower you take, and I'm guilty of this, by the way. I, I'm not I'm not saying like I'm a Zen Buddhist in the shower all the time, but like, what if every shower you take is, uh, you know, you're listening to a podcast at the same time because you brought your phone into the bathroom and you hit play before you stepped in? Like, I'm sure most people listening are, are, would say, "Yeah, I'd do that," or you've got music playing in there. And it's not to say that that is a bad thing. But it's just a good example of a area where there would have been a reliable pocket of silence in the past that there probably isn't today. And so again, you do have to find those those times so that you can let your brain do what it's good at doing. Yeah. I love the thought right now of someone listening to our conversation in the shower. So <laughs> yeah. Don't forget yeah. to lather up and rinse. There probably are. I mean, I I I have to say there there have certainly been episodes of your podcast I've listened to while, while in the shower. Nice. Yeah. That makes me feel pretty good, actually. So, <laughs> um, yeah. You've, you've come with me throughout the house, vacuuming the, vacuuming the living room, taking the trash out, just about everywhere. <laughs> That's excellent. I, I do appreciate silence because I think when I think about silence, just in terms of being 
someone who obviously creates a lot of things, silence has to play a huge role in in my life because if I don't, like I can't focus. Like there's certain things I can't do with a podcast playing. There's a lot of things I can't do with music playing. Like I remember when I was working on my master's degree, I there was I, when I had to sit down and write, I had a, a an album that I would play every time to like get my mind in the writing space. And it was Radiohead's Kid A. I mean, I wrote the majority of my papers with Radiohead. Good choice. Enough. And Good and choice. so whenever like that first song hit, like it's as if the world kind of like narrowed to you know the soundtrack and the the software in front of me Mm -hmm. um and what's weird is like i play it now and i can't it's not it's not the soundtrack to my writing now yeah that's interesting but a good choice i mean i can see i i've been i've there have been times where I've been pretty partial to various brian eno records for writing for the but they have the same kind of you know they're, they're much more firmly in the ambient world but i think there are elements of kid a that are intensely trans or intent uh, intentionally trance like yeah. and probably really good for writing whereas maybe like the bends wouldn't work because it's a little <laughs> yeah. bit more song oriented yes yeah and i do find that the ambient music is really interesting lately because i found that one of my favorite artists has really gotten into it and um his name's devin townsend and mm. he he started as like this metal guy screaming at the top of his lungs, kind of went down the obvious road of metal and and songwriting. But then he would always have these kind of side project albums where they were fully ambient. Cool. And so through the pandemic, he actually did like a pandemic record that was fully ambient. Oh, that, you said his name's Devin Townsend? Sorry. Yeah. And it was called look. The Puzzle. Okay. I'm going to look that up when we're done. Yeah, and it's just fascinating how it it creates a different feel, even from silence, yep. from the traditional music soundscape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the ultimate consideration here is that if you make something or are creating anything, you have to really think about what raw material comes into that besides the stuff that's just in your head, right? And it's usually a good mix, right? I mean, you know, we all, uh, those of us who create anything, we create because someone else created first and we saw that and felt that and it spoke to us in some way. And so balancing the the the, the sort of notion of accepting and celebrating the influence of others on our work with also being guarded and careful to not oversaturate with others yeah. It, that's a really tough challenge. You know, for example, when I first, I mentioned before, you know, when I first started doing any public speaking, I remember um, a guy I, I have known professionally for a long time who I admire very much used to say to me that when you go and talk at a conference, don't listen to anyone else's talk. Like, make sure you're not in the room, just come in when it's your turn, do your thing and go. And that's that really worked for him. And I remember at the time being thinking that that would that was the opposite of what I would do because I I was always concerned about being up on stage in that first second being the first impression I was making on everyone in the room, and so it made me feel more comfortable and confident to have other experience with at least some people in that room first. 
So that when I stepped up there at the uh, and right behind the microphone, I could look at those people and know that I already had some equity with them, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that might be a person who spoke first or might not, but I I just felt the need to be in the mix. But you know, I have kind of come around on his view since then, because my approach was always good for making me feel more confident when I got up up there to deliver the the material I was going to deliver. But I'm not convinced now, in hindsight, that it actually made for the best talk I could give. Mm. And I think that's where he was coming from, which is the best talk I can give is the one that I prepared before I got here. That is exactly what I want it to be. That is exactly what is going on in my head and not colored by other people's points of view. And I think once you start hearing what other people say on that same stage, you naturally want to connect so you might reference it as you talk and think, you know, and that's yeah. one way of doing it. But I, I think it can change things. So I think it's 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 a matter of balance, mm -hmm. right? Um, being alone in the shower is your brain's opportunity to work on the material that's already in there, yeah. right? But if you're con if if there's other stuff going in there, then it's hard to differentiate between what is someone else's thought and what's yours. And while I think we all have to realize that there are very few new things, if if not anything new under the sun, right? What is going to cut through to someone else's attention is as novel a thought as you are able to muster. That's in line with what I've heard a lot recently. I've been interviewing a lot of uh, book writers, authors, mm -hmm. and usually at the end of the show, when I ask, you know, what book are you, is really blowing your mind right now, and they're like, "Oh, I'm not reading right now," and like <laughs> I didn't really think about that too much until I started writing a book. Then you're just like, "Oh, I get it," because mm -hmm. You are, you are clouded in a sense by other people's thoughts. Right. And you can get into sort of an analysis paralysis of, of like, oh, well, they did it. I mean, I remember when I wrote a book, it was 10 years ago, and I started by mapping out my chapters and then building subpoints. And in my, my room at home, I had post-it notes mapping it all out, right? Very cliche, but that, that's what I did. And I remember I had a stack of books that I was referencing. And I, I, I remember I burned days hyper-analyzing how they wrote out and designed their tables of contents. Interesting. Which in hindsight was a complete waste because the publisher had control over that, not me. But that was the level of like comparative analysis that I got drawn into doing, which was not helpful at all to me. I should have known that uh, that would be a pitfall for me because as a designer writing a book, I was totally <laughs> going to get sucked into the beauty of someone's visual taxonomy and, you know, hyper-analyze what is going to be a cool way to do it or not. Uh, so yeah, I think there's, there's some real wisdom to putting up some barriers. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too, describing that process of, you know, the structure and, and the, the structure of the writing itself. And that's something that, you know, if we shift our conversation now to artificial intelligence, in, in a way, we can offload a lot of those, you know, post-it notes on the window kind of vibe and just let the computer figure it out for us, right? I suppose one could make that choice if they wanted to. Yeah. I I I I can just see how uncomfortable you are right <laughs> now with, with artificial intelligence. And you know, you're always tweeting such interesting things to say about AI. So, you know, 
when you start thinking about, you know, chat GPT, mid journey and, you know, deep other deep fake technologies that, that do these interesting things for us, you know, what are you seeing from your vantage point about AI in the creative sector in the world at large? Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> those, so Chris and I are, are video chatting right now. And so you all don't have the benefit of seeing my face implode on itself a moment ago when this came up, because I think this is an issue that I, I am very interested in and an issue that I care a lot about and have for my entire life, because I was raised by a computer engineer um, who worked expressly in uh, computer research early on in my life around uh, augmented communications technologies for the disabled. And so he worked in robotics, eye tracking technology, all these kinds of technologies that would augment human capability and experience, right? And that's essentially what we think AI is meant to do, is meant to do what humans either can't do or don't want to do, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I've been thinking about it a lot. and. Um, and also as a kid who read a lot of science fiction, um, I, I, it's been on my mind. But here's the interesting thing, for me anyway, yeah. in, in watching the discourse today, at the heart of it, there is nothing new in the discourse on artificial intelligence, basically since Paracelsus, who in the 16th century wrote a book called Of the Nature of Things. And in that book, he was an alchemist as well as a philosopher and a scientist of his time. But again, we're talking 16th century, 1500s. He wrote in his book that he could create an artificial man by impregnating a pile of horse manure. <laughs> now, that's really easy to laugh at today. Yeah. In, yeah. In Which the, I just in the, did. Right. In the 21st century. Very easy to laugh at. But and And again, I have to underscore that he was an alchemist and a lot of alchemical thinking and belief at the time is easy to laugh at today. But my point is that though the technology has increased in sophistication, the basic idea of a human-created consciousness is something that's been discussed long before anyone had the slightest notion of computers. And by that, I mean the possibility of it, right? Is it possible? The metaphysics of it, what kind of personhood or soul would this being have and the ethics of it what moral obligation does a creator have to their creation and the practical ramifications of it right how does society shift to accommodate the production of persons that outscale biology all of this has been discussed for hundreds and hundreds of years to great depth and if you followed that conversation which at the risk of sounding overly judgmental, I think the vast majority of people talking about and working in AI today have not. You would understand that the most critical component of either thinking about or creating artificial intelligence technology are those ethical questions, right? Even if you set aside the metaphysical question, right? Because I think when if you say AI to somebody, they're going to think about fictional portrayals of it where the central question is, is this a person or not? Right. Right. It has consciousness been created. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're talking about today at all. That that's not, that's not happening. 
Um, I know there was that big story about the Google uh, engineer who was fired after questioning that maybe their chat engine that predates uh, ChatGPT uh, was conscious or not. But the reality is that that person was fooled by the conversational sophistication of the language, uh, 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 the language that was being used, um, the, the language engine. Um, so now here we are in the 21st century when the notion of artificial intelligence is no longer a specialized subject, right? Everyone's talking about it. Right. And why? Uh, it's not because we've done what concerned people for the last hundreds and hundreds of years, not because we've actually created a conscious technology, but because we've created a machine that's sophisticated enough to A, do certain things faster and better than we do on our own, and B, sophisticated enough to fool us into thinking that it's more than it is. Right, because that engineer at Google is not a stupid person, right. not stupid. Um, there have been numerous journalists who have written about the spookiness of their conversations with Chat GPT or an equivalent uh, language model uh, chatbot. Uh, and that's that's the Turing test, right? The Turing test was designed to measure whether a, a machine could be sophisticated enough to be indistinguishable indis indistinguishable from a human by another human. So in other words, to test whether you could figure out if the words coming from a chat window, say, were being typed by another human or generated by a machine. Well, chat GPT passes the Turing test, doesn't it? The yeah. average person will probably have a hard time pinpointing whether a chunk of text came from it uh, or another person. But that doesn't say anything about the personhood of chat GPT, does it? Mm -mm. No. So I think we're in a place right now where AI is essentially a very fancy toy, but a potentially very dangerous one. Yeah, And the reason I say that is not because I'm worried that we're going to have an earth populated by technological persons anytime soon. It, it's because what I find really interesting is that the value proposition for things like ChatGPT essentially comes down to, it's going to save you time, right? On such and su such a thing. And, and time saving is not a bad value prop, generally speaking. But if I'm saving time because a machine is doing work that I used to do, what am I doing with that free time? Right? Is it leisure time for me now? Do I get to use it to tend to my garden or care for my children or read books or make music, art or food? Right? Hasn't that been the promise of technology for, for our entire lifetimes that it will reduce work and create a, le a leisure society? Right? Perhaps give us a four-day work week or something like that? Well, I just don't think we live in a society that will accept that ever. Right? Over the span of just my career, right, a couple of decades, We've seen so many time-saving technologies be integrated into the world of work. And rather than using that time to do something other than the work we used to do, we use it to do new work. Right? Our society is addicted to business. We will take profit in dollars over profit in time every single opportunity we have. And so that's what concerns me about ChatGPT, is that, sure, there are going to be some jobs that will be either rendered uh, unnecessary because you can get a bot to do it, or they'll change fundamentally to use bot technology. But I think what it's going to result in is everyone's day being squeezed more, not less. Right? And that's, that's disturbing to me. I saw a video recently that I watched on YouTube. It was titled something like 10 things you can do with ChatGPT right now. Right? And I was curious to see how this person was using this technology because not because I was entertaining potentially using it 
in 10 different ways, but I, I just <laughs> am very interested to hear how other people perceive value in a technology like that. Mm. And by the end of it, I thought to myself, man, you know, if I were in my most cynical place right now, I would have retitled this video, how chat GPT will keep you from experiencing anything directly ever. Mm. Right. Because it seems to me that if you're going to use this thing 10 different ways through your workday to, to save you time. I watched this guy and I thought to myself, man, he's doing a lot of work to configure and manage this machine. So that in theory, this machine will do the work that he was doing before. But at the end of the day, if you're, what you're doing is exchanging work for work, wouldn't you rather just do the work where you had a direct hand in the making of the thing? For me, that's preferable. I would prefer to make something myself than to administer a robot making it and have to add in a bunch of other administrative technological work that comes with that robot than I had before, right? Again, if I'm not actually going to say, oh, I get to turn, uh, you know, I get to turn off my machine and go outside right. for an extra hour a day. So that that's, I think, my biggest concern right now about AI. And I think the big companies that are investing in this and basically making it inexorable that it's going to be a part of our lives, it's because it's essentially an arms race, mm. right? Yeah. I don't believe that someone like Satya Nadella at uh, at Microsoft is uh, incapable of thinking about the philosophical side of things. I'm, I'm, I have no reason to believe that he is not capable of great depth of thought around this. I don't know the person, but I have to assume the best of someone who can run a company like that. Yeah. But I don't think he's incentivized to act upon those thoughts, whether they're the ethical implications of what happens to a society when uh, technology like this is unleashed upon it, um, what happens to uh, people who are creating that technology. I mean, remember, these technologies are operating on rules written by human beings and drawing deductions from a corpus of entirely human-created material. So there are ethical implications of that, right? Uh, how do you adjudicate between the good and the bad stuff? What's the point of view on the curation of that corpus? And how do you then administer a point of view on what the machine spits out? And that's a big conversation today. Now, I, again, I don't think someone like that is incapable of navigating that kind of conversation. But I do think that ultimately the analysis is, well, if we don't get there first and productize this now, someone else will. Right. And so if it's inevitable that someone's going to do it, it might as well be us. And then you can start to rationalize it and think, well, look, if someone's going to do this, it might as well be us because at least we'll do it right. We'll do the good version of it. Right. right? It'll, it'll be the more stable one, the more humane one. You can tell yourself all those things, but ultimately you're shipping it at all because you assume that shipping it is inexorable and you might as well be the one to clean up financially on it. But what if they were all to get together and say, hey, maybe we don't ship this at all but that will never happen. First off, my mind is blown that this conversation has been happening since the 1500s. I mean, in, in some form or another, mind yep. completely blown. I know that there's the ethical questions involved with artificial intelligence, but I think the, the, the thing that really got me thinking of what you just said, which I loved every minute of it, by the way, <laughs> was thinking about work and how we're not going to replace the time savings with more leisure time 
but with new work and more work to keep us trapped in a cycle of what I'll call the bad work, <laughs> not the good work that is um, contributing to society, but the work that is meant to, I think, um, extract as much value from the world as possible. The pennies on the dollar that, you know, I, I always go back to Superman three and how, you know, he writes the computer virus to still pen, you know, fractions of a penny and, mm -hmm. you know, decimal point in the wrong place. You know, they did it before office space. Come on. Right. But I go back to that in terms of, you know, like that's not necessarily the good work of life. And so are we creating this technology to facilitate good work or bad work and everything in between? Yeah, I, I think that the technology is being created. I mean, I, I hate to be so conclusive about this because it's this is certainly not going to be true of everyone who works in this space. Right. But I think largely we're creating this technology because we can. Um, surely there are people involved who really believe that the benefits of a technology like this outweigh any of the potential pitfalls. For example, I've, I've seen cited numerous times that, wow, you know, uh, a tool, whether it's chat GPT or not, a tool like that would be a much more reliable diagnostician than your average overworked, tired doctor. And that's probably true because we ask a lot of our doctors and they're under all the wrong kinds of pressure. Uh, and so perhaps a machine would be more reliable about assessing somebody's uh, situation and and coming up with uh, a diagnostic. Um, that would almost certainly be true on the pathology side of things, where someone's actually looking at uh, some kind of uh, biopsy or sample and trying to make a diagnostic based on that. Uh, almost certainly a machine's going to be more reliable over time than a human being. And so should we create that machine? I can't say no. But does that mean that that same machine gets applied equally in all corners of society? Uh, certainly not. Yeah. And I think we have to be very careful and that, you know, back to the first part of this conversation, stop and take a breath a minute and think about it, right? Because that the idea that perhaps a machine might be more consistent and um, properly analytical, comprehensively analytical than a human being, you might say in most conditions that's true, but there are going to be exceptions where human uh, patterns of thought and human senses um, would be better. There, there's a there's a story being passed around people uh, right now. Um, I can't remember where this came from, but I was talking to a friend actually just over lunch today who's a computational linguist, and he was at a talk about AI, and they were talking about how the AI was asked to use, a, a you know, given a bunch of different materials, how can I retrieve a ball from underneath the uh, the sofa? And the machine basically MacGyvered the situation, you know, like, oh, you take the hockey stick and you put peanut butter on it and you tie a little thread to it and you scoot it under that way. Whereas the human being is like, no, just scoot it out with the hockey stick. You right. know, you've got a hockey stick, just use that one thing. So, um, and then even when they would give further instruction to the machine, like you don't have to use every element that I have in, in play, they're just ultimately not good at planning and not good at common sense. 
yet. And any any that's the thing you have to put towards this is yet because anyone who's working on this will say, "Oh, well we can fix that." Mm. Right? We can we can build a model for that. Mm-hmm. The question is, well, should we? And and I don't have an answer to that, but I think we must ask the question in every condition. We can't just say that, oh, this technology is viable in one place and seems like it would solve a ready problem in one place. Therefore, let's institutionalize it across society. Yeah. Right? That seems pretty dangerous to me. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about consistency and how, you know, in terms of pathology, we're having a computer give a consistent view of what's going on. It made me think about something that is often said in the world of content creation, for lack of a better phrase, is that if you want to get noticed, you need to con- you need to be consistent. In a way, you have to be more machine than than human, and and so I I think it's very interesting that there there is a a push to be more machine as a human as opposed to it augmenting your life and allowing you to be more human. Yeah, I mean, you're basically describing the last decade and a half of search engine optimization inbound marketing techniques, right? Yeah. Uh, if you write enough and frame that content for a indexing robot to understand what it is, then hopefully you'll do better at getting human attention later, right? Because those humans are relying on those bots to match them to their queries. And if you arrange it for the bots, they'll get there, right? That's what SEO is. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. I'm actually in the middle of writing an article on this. I'm not personally that interested in SEO, but because it aligns and interweaves with so much of what I do professionally, I, I've, I've recently been having these thoughts about, well, what does SEO mean in 2023? Right. Right. And at this point, organic search engine optimization basically doesn't matter anymore. You know, it's kind of like, well, we did it, guys. We filled the internet with content, right? <laughs> we did it. It's so full that even a really well crafted query, isn't a reliable way to get you to what you want in, uh, by way of Google. Yeah. Right? I think of myself as a fairly savvy searcher in the sense that I'm not going to throw a general query at Google once and then only accept what I get back. I'm going to think about that query, knowing what I know about SEO. I'm really going to, you know, I might try several times. And even, that, even then, you know, it's very difficult to get anything reliable back um, and to get the kind of diversity back that you would have gotten maybe 10 years ago. Um, and I actually think that the future of search is basically a syncophantic AI, right? A- an artificial intelligence system that is primarily mo- motivated to give you what it thinks you want. Mm. And that's the antithesis of what SEO used to be, which yeah. is to give you what you ask for by way of a objective measure of some kind of authority over a topic. Give me the best source on this thing. So yeah, I, I think you're right. We've been trained in the content and communications design technology field for decades now to be less human oriented in both what we do and why we do it and how we do it. And I'm not convinced that AI is going to change that. It's just going to new rules. It's going to be new rules of botting yeah. for all of us. Mm-hmm. So interesting. So many things to think about, too. If there was one ethical question that you think we should spend more time really wrestling with and and thinking about, what would that question be? Well, when I think back to what I said about why AI, to me, looks a lot like an arms race, 
right? Where we have to get there because someone else might get there first. That wouldn't be uh, happening, I think, if the rules of capitalism weren't underneath it all. And I'm no uh, economist, and so I'm not really. Uh, I shouldn't be talking much about the the problems or virtues of capitalism. But what I can say that is pretty clear to anyone willing to observe it is that capitalism's primary motivation in the in the grand scheme of things is growth. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a lot of people will talk about the virtues of capitalism being the idea of competition and a free market where anyone can compete. But the problem is, is that once someone starts winning the competition war, there are other elements of capitalism that make it easy for them to stay there. Um, and that's why we have things like regulation. That's why we have antitrust lawsuits. Um, <laughs> they have to compensate for what the system would do if it were untethered. And I think that that system by its nature is looking for growth. Um, that's why if you're a company like Apple that has more money than any other company on this planet and more money than many countries, it's not good enough to just say, well, we did it. We made a lot of money. Let's do some good stuff now. Let's not worry about making money anymore. No, the shareholders expect that their investment will grow over time. And so even if you made record-setting profits this year, you got to make record-setting profits next year, which means you have to make more profit next year than you made this year. And if you make less, then all of a sudden the stock valuation drops and the CEO has to have some hard conversations and maybe get their uh, compensation docked. So anyway, you asked me, what's the ethical question? I guess the ethical question is, do we need to pursue growth? Mm. And I think the answer is no. I think, um, you know, there are a lot of people talking, uh, you, you've probably heard and people listening have probably heard about the degrowth movement. Mm. Um, degrowth being the idea that growth in terms of the way that I'm describing it, not like personal growth, not physical growth, but the 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 constant capitalization of investments is harmful to society and is not an intrinsically worthy goal. Um, and we have to look at that goal and the sort of systemic outworking of it, because it does lead to the continuation of inequalities and the, the suffering that other people endure. Um, it does, it, it leads to all kinds of global problems. And so I guess if I were to look at one question that I think is underneath it all, it's, is, is growth good for society? Yeah. There, there was a book written in the last year called Choke Point Capitalism by Corey Doctoro, and um, he has a co-writer on it. I can't remember her name at the moment, but it, it's essentially looking at all of the big tech companies and how they create these choke points on information and capitalism in a sense Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean the first chapter is amazon if that says anything about how (laughs) let's just say the only chapter of the book you can get on audible is their chapter on audible and how it's a choke point Mm -hmm. but but i bring that up because there are some amazing people out there really examining these really hard questions I mean, that's not an easy question to ask or let alone answer of should there be growth anymore? Like Mm -hmm. you ask like my dad, for example, that question. I mean, you're basically a socialist at that point. Yeah. And and, and I think it's reasonable to be critical of 
potentially unjustified answers to that question. The problem is, is that we we live in a culture right now that is so poised to fight all the time that even if you ask a question, people assume that what you're really doing is giving an answer, right? Like that, it, it's it's almost like a question like that comes from a point of view that's not accepted. It's and but honestly, that question's neutral. Um, I think it's worthy to question something like that and to say, well, perhaps there are other ways that we can operate that don't lead to these kinds of issues. I mean, a growth, a perpetual growth uh, assumes that you can scale everything in every direction and you just cannot. Um, so yeah, Corey Doctorow is a great uh, person to cite there. I read something recently from him where he's talking, where, uh, pardon the language, but it's his words, he's talking about the inshittification mm-hmm. of technology. And I, I, you know, he has, he has a way of, of uh, pack- packaging up a, a decently justified vitriol around his experience of technology as as a writer and uh, a thinker about technology, but he's often right. And there are so many people thinking about it. I often, you know, in this conversation, I think, well, who am I to critique this? I'm just, I'm just a tiny little person in the system. But honestly, I think it's the tiny people who, who spend most of their life more subject to the system that are uh, entitled to the question, perhaps even more than the people at the top or outer edges of the system who have more control over its shape and experience, right? Like, again, you know, not to pick on Satya Nadella, but like any CEO of a company of that size, yeah, I would encourage them to ask that question too. But I think that they are going to see it from a, uh, a, a completely different side of the benefit structure than someone like you or I would. Even on the small scale of like my own business, I think about growth all the time because obviously, you know, <laughs> I I want there to be some growth. Sure. But it's just like I think of all the messaging out there for solopreneurs and one person businesses and even small businesses of like, you can have a six figure business, a seven figure business and all this stuff. And it's that push towards those things. And at the end of the day, that's not what I want. Like, like I want growth to a certain point. And then the question then becomes, and then what? Yeah. And I, I find that question a lot more interesting to sit with than how do I get to that point? Right. How do I keep that point? Well, and that's, that's another great sort of society wide question to really ask people what they want. Um, and then maybe the follow-up question is, are you sure that what you want has not been defined by somebody else's achievement that you've observed? Because I do think that a large aspect of the sort of American dream, such as it's defined in 2023, is a sense of desire modeled after a few public displays of success, as opposed to individuals actually asking themselves, what would make me satisfied? You know, where where might I be content? Uh, I, I have found that when I, when I ask myself that question, as opposed to letting myself and my desires be defined by others, which we're all subject to, I'm not saying I've never been there. Like it's, if without discipline, I would spend all my time there. But if I ask myself that question and truly answer it, what, what I want and what would make me content is actually quite little. I really don't need that much. And I think that 
a world of people that have what they need and and are truly looking for contentment, we've got more than enough for that world. More than enough. But a world of people who are defining their success based upon maybe the wealthiest person on Twitter and what that person has achieved, we don't have enough in the world for a world full of those people. Mm. I'm just letting that sink in because that's, yeah. Oof. Well, Chris, yeah, I mentioned Corey Doctorow, and he's a science fiction writer first and foremost. And you mentioned X-Files earlier. Is there a film or television series that uh, really speaks to this time that I that we should learn from? Other than Johnny Mnemonic, right? Well, Johnny Mnemonic is a fun movie to watch. I, I, it's, I actually rewatched it recently because um, I have an issue of Wired where he's on the cover. Oh, I, have, yeah. I have the back catalog wired and I thought maybe I should check that out again. It's not good. It's no. as bad as they said it was, yes. but it does look really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, I would say if I had to, I, I say this a lot to people I know that I think the best piece of recorded visual media of all time is Mr. Rogers. Mm-hmm. And I say that very intentionally. I, you know, I've, I watched it as a kid. It was, a huge part of establishing my worldview as a child. And I've rewatched it uh, a lot now with my child. And one thing that I really appreciate about rewatching Mr. Rogers today is that it feels like it's a slightly technologically neutral situation, right? Um, It's not neutral, but all of the technological conditions that uh, define our world today are really not present in in the world of Mr. Rogers. Um, and for those people listening who haven't watched it in a while, um, I, I found that a lot of people who watch it as a kid think of Mr. Rogers in hindsight as mostly the neighborhood of make-believe, right? King Friday and Daniel Tiger and all that. And really, that was only really a third of each episode. Um, most of his episodes were broken down into three sections, one of which might be the neighborhood of make-believe. Another section would be Mr. Rogers speaking to the viewers in some way. And then a third would be Mr. Rogers going out into the world and exposing a child to something. And as an adult, those two thirds, not the the make-believe stuff is nice, but as an adult, and even noticing my daughter's has been historically much more interested in the other two thirds, where he goes out into the world, he shines a light on somebody else's experience. Um, An artist, a musician, a dancer, someone who works in a factory. I mean, it runs the gamut. And he does it with such uh, compassion and curiosity. It never occurs to him to render a judgment about anyone else's experience, whether good or bad. It's not like he goes to the organist um, in in uh, Pittsburgh and says, well, this person is truly good and worthy and his time is well spent, or goes to the factory, uh, the person who's packaging up the graham crackers and says, hey, everyone should really respect this person more because this person is really working for you. He, he, There's no judgment. It's just about what is this person's experience. And there's very little media about that in the world today of just an objective, neutral, and compassionate view into what the world is like for somebody else. A small player in a big world, right? He, he wasn't going to visit kings or like, you know, people who wielded a ton of power. He was talking to very 
accessible human beings. So I would recommend that anyone watch Mr. Rogers, especially today, because I see it as somewhat of an antidote to pernicious thinking that the persistent technological connections of Twitter can create in our brains, right? Sort of like competitive, avaricial, judgmental, negative, mean-spirited thinking that can be the, the sort of natural repercussion of spending all your time on something like Twitter. And Mr. Rogers is really a bomb to that, and you can find it online. I love that. Well, Chris, if you were to shine a light on an artist or a book or a back catalog issue of Wired, where would you shine your light right now? No, I don't know. I mean, I've, I think we've, we've talked about a lot of specific things, but something that occurred to me just before we started talking today, I, I was listening to a, a, a podcast discussion between someone who was describing a conspiracy theory to someone who was skeptical of that conspiracy theory. And I have a lot of compassion for conspiratorial thinking because I find that I can relate to it. You know, there are conspiracies in this world. And I think we, it's very easy to label something as a conspiracy theory as a way of writing it off. Right. But there are a lot of really bad conspiracy theories in this world that are destructive and harmful. And the, and what really strikes me is that we live in a time of uh, so much information all the time, right? Inundation of information. And it leads us to overestimate what what we know, right? We, we often think we know more than we do. And I think that a lot of conspiracy theories are the result of incomplete information. Because you can make a logical, cogent conclusion with an, without enough information, right? And still be wrong. You can be <laughs> dead wrong, even though your conclusion is logical and cogent persuasive given the information you have. Um, and I think uh, most of the time we don't have enough information. There's a lot of information in the world and we are all focused on things we're focused on. We don't know everything. We don't know all the information. So ultimately, and this is a great, maybe a great conclusion because it speaks to the heart of your podcast, but I think as a result, it's just always better to be curious than it is to be conclusive. So that's the wisdom I point to right there. It's not a person, but it's, it's all of us, right? I can't think of a better way to end our time together, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's a pleasure. Thank you for, uh, thanks for having me on. I always enjoy talking to you and, and listening to you talking to others. As I wrap up this episode, there are three things from this conversation that I'd love to shine a light on. The first is that my mind is still blown thinking about the conversation around artificial intelligence being around since the 1500s. Knowing that, what am I missing? What do I need to research? What do I need to experience? Instead of just the hot take, headline, clickbait articles that are telling me what I should think. There's some work that I'm going to have to unpack here. The second thing, with anything that I'm doing, how can I ask the question, and then what? To help bring me to a deeper understanding of what I want and need to the forefront and third, there is a deepening understanding that I am less interested in answers and more tuned in to curious conversations like this one with Christopher that get me thinking about the possibilities. What about you? What stood out in this conversation with Chris? 
I encourage you to go to his website. The link is in the show notes. And you're going to find a list of what he's writing about and sharing on Twitter, including his most recent obsession with mini disc technology. Until next time, may creativity and curiosity fuel your life. <laughs>